This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Exams, autocracy, stability, and technology, they've all been aspects of Chinese society for centuries, uh, from ancient times through to the present. Is that set to continue? How well? Does it work today? Yasheng Huang has written The Rise and Fall of the East, How Exams, Autocracy, Stability and Technology Brought China Success and Why They May Lead to Its Decline. So uh, welcome to you. Thank you, Owen. Thank you. And it's a very intriguing title and um, it's an acronym, of course, E-A-S-T, Exams, Autocracy, Stability, Technology. And, And the most important is the first one, the E. So we're going to talk a bit about that at the beginning. And you're talking about the civil service exam system that goes way back in China. Yes. Uh, As far as we know, China was the first country to both invent the system as well as implement the system on such a large scale. Uh, Prussia began to emulate the system much, much later. So Chinese system was established formally in 6th century, and it was used to examine the candidates for bureaucratic positions in the imperial government. It was nationwide in scale, open to all the male part of the population. So the eligibility, theoretically speaking, all the males were eligible. Uh, It had a profound impact on China. We'll talk about the impact in a moment. But first, just on the exam, uh, what was it like? How long did it go on for? How difficult was it? It was extremely difficult. It was offered every three years, and it drew candidates from all over the country. Uh, Each round, there was estimated about 4 million people began to take the preparatory exam. And then it got progressively harder because you had the provincial level, the metropolitan level. And then the last exam was held in the imperial palace. And the examiner in chief was the emperor himself. And to succeed, often you had to memorize between 300,000 and 400,000 characters in classical Chinese. So that's not the language you use in everyday communication. It was a very specific kind of uh, vocabulary. So it was extraordinarily difficult. But was this an exam? Was there any maths in it? Was this um, a sort of uh, rote learning exam? Did it require any creative thought? Can you give us a bit more on the, the, the nature of the exam? Yeah. So when it was established in the sixth century, it had multiple subject matters. Medicine, for example, was there. Definitely the Confucianist ideology was there. So there was, there was a multiplicity of subject matters. But over time, 
all these other subject matters were dropped. So the only thing that was left, beginning about 10th century, 11th century, was the Confucianist ideology. It was pure memorization, rote memorization. There was an essay component toward the very end, but then to get to that, you had to survive all these uh, other hurdles that required massive memorization and, and sheer rote memorization. Right, so it rewarded good memory more than good thinking. Absolutely, it would punish good thinking. And it was not just... (laughs) (laughs) So if you came up with a contrarian idea, you would uh, be disqualified instantaneously. And you also had to follow the specific format of the exam. You, You can only write your answers in a particular way. If you deviated from that format, you became disqualified. And I think you said four million would take part in this exercise, what, each three years? Yes, every three years. And also you could take it multiple times. In one database that we had, the youngest person who passed the exam all the way to the end was something like 13 years old. The oldest person was 59. And the average uh, age was 36. So if you think back in 15th century, 16th century, The life expectancy then was very short. Essentially, you devoted almost your entire life to the examination. And if you you say there were 4 million at the start, how many would succeed at the end of the process? Yeah, eventually you got about 300, roughly that number. And those people would go on to what? Yeah, so those people then had their career all set for them. They had... uh, Bureaucratic uh, posts, bureaucratic positions. They uh, the, actually within that three hundred, they also rank these three hundred uh, people. So the top three will be promoted to the highest bureaucratic positions in the government. Uh, in one dynasty, they had about something like ninety prime ministers. Uh, Eighty-seven of them got the first honor in their cohort, right? So this is just a remarkably meritocratic uh, system. And did those top elite bureaucrats uh, leave any other work? I mean, were any of them writing or maybe doing more creative work? Well, they left writing. The last stage of the exam required what is known as policy essay. And there, there's some element of creativity, but then that has to follow within the parameters that were laid out by the imperial regime. You couldn't really deviate from that. And and nobody, as far as we know, openly challenged the emperor. Remember, the emperor was the examiner-in-chief, right? So... To survive and to pass that round of the exam, you better not challenge the emperor. Have you read any of those final essays? Yeah, there were some essays that uh, that were that were sort of held up as sample essays, um, and they were about tax policies. They were about how the uh, imperial regime could rule without oppressing the people. Uh, One essay 
was actually quite sort of indirectly critical of the emperor. So there were some essays that were left to the um, uh, to the uh, to the post- posterity to 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 study. And if you were as a professor now, as you are in the United States, if a student turned up with one of those essays, what sort of grade would they be getting today? I gave them very high grade for fidelity to 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 the ideology. I wouldn't give them very high grade for analytics, logic, rules of evidence. Um, there's there's nothing like that uh, in most of these essays. Maybe there's one or two that had an element of rudimentary element of uh, reasoning, but most of them didn't have that. Right. And we're going to talk about the um, impact of these essays, not just on the bureaucracy, I mean, on these exams, not just on the bureaucracy, but on society more generally. Before doing that, we need to run through this distinction you make between uh, scope uh, you talk about and scale. Uh, So first of all, can you tell us a bit about what you mean by scale? Yeah, scale basically means in my book, homogeneity, homogeneity of ideas, homogeneity of uh, economy, homogeneity of uh, government and political system, right? So essentially, you can think about autocracy and centrally planned economy as having a lot of scale. There's only one government, there's only one ideology. And there's only one form of ownership, uh, state ownership. Scope, I mean heterogeneity, right? Diversity of ideas, diversity of political competition, diversity of uh, economic uh, entities. You can have private enterprises, you can have foreign enterprises, you can have uh, state-owned enterprises. So that makes the distinction between scale and scope and argue that a successful country successful government needs to have a balance of both rather than excess of one. And uh, yeah, so that's that's the central argument of the book. Yeah, just to spell that out a little more clearly, you're saying, you know, scale is something that China would naturally have in terms of, you know, very large units of economic production and able to turn out lots of the same sort of thing, you know, in, in enormous numbers. Uh, whereas Europe would have been stronger on 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 scope, you know, lots of different ideas, sometimes leading to violence. So yes. it, it, there must be times must be times when it's counterproductive, right? Yes. So so that's why you need a balance, right? So if you excel only on scope, you may become more inventive, but you also have anarchy, <laughs> you also have chaos, you also have civil war. China went through that period. So if you look at the historical period when China was most creative and inventive, it was also most violent. Like Europe, um, when you had 100-year war, 30-year war, but you know it came with the territory, right? So you become more creative because of that. China also had uh, scale, right? After 6th century, it began to have one political system. And then after 10th century, 11th century, it began to have one ideology. That gave you stability, but at the expense of creativity. So the Chinese technology began to decline. So essentially, 
you have to think about this issue as a balance of these two forces. And where exactly is the sweet spot is something you try to aim at rather than aiming only at one of these two uh, two forces. Yeah. Are you aware of the, the third man, the film? No, I'm not. No. Sorry about that. It's an Orson, Orson, Orson Welles film. Okay. And I'm going to give you a quote from it, from the, the, the lead character. Many people listening will, will know this quote, probably. Uh, although it does show my age, maybe a bit. Uh, you know what the fellow said? In Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love, 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> okay. So that, that's interesting, right? So I think for a modern society, for a modern system, we need to balance between these two things, right? Definitely having a lot of creativity, but also a lot of violence is not the ideal situation. On the other hand, you know, having stagnation, stability without creativity, that's not ideal either. So the trick is how to balance these two things. You know, you've talked a bit about the bureaucracy. So well, let's just get a bit more on that. The bureaucracy must have been, with these people, pretty good by contemporaneous standards anyway. You mean the quality of the bureaucrats? The, yeah, I mean, they the were knowledge? delivering Yeah, they were delivering governance, I presume, on a, on a very big country. Yeah, so, okay, so I contrasted Chinese empire with Roman empire, right? Roman empire collapsed, West Roman empire collapsed in 476. And Europe never was able to go back to the Western Roman Empire. You know, Hitler tried it, Napoleon tried it. Whereas the Chinese Empire, uh, after a period of uh, civil war and disunity, in, 19, in 580, reconstituted itself and has never looked back. It has remained a unified empire Ever since, right, today's uh, China is a legacy of that unification project. And that's a result of the exam system, its ability to scale, its ability to impose one idea, one ideology, one political system on such a vast territory, right? If you say that's a, that's a success, that's a, that's a success. Some people would argue that's actually not very good for economy, for technology. But I do believe we need to define our, in, our metric clearly before we say one way or the other whether the system has been successful or not. Yeah, I take the point. But just in terms of, of you know, administrative capacity, um, so if I were to say in 10, I'm going to get my dates wrong, but it's something like 1080, the English king, uh, the French king had just taken over England, he ordered a survey of the country, which was pretty thorough, down to, for most of the country, how much land someone had, how much woodland they had, how many cows and sheep they had. And he had that pretty much for the whole of, of England, let's say. Uh, in 1080, where would the Chinese have been you know, on that kind of administrative capacity and when? Well, so that was, so you mean 10 AD, right? So that would be, uh, oh, 1080, thousand, yeah, so 11th century. Uh, so, about a thousand years ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that would be the Song Dynasty, 
the dynasty that invented、uh, three out of the four biggest inventions in the history of mankind: printing, gunpowder, and、uh, compass. That later on spread to Europe and transformed European society and European economy. That was also a period when China had the Chinese bureaucracy had a, had highest ratio of bureaucrats who passed through this exam system that I was talking about. Right. So the system was established in 580 within. Six、uh, hundred years, five hundred years, it began to encompass the entire bureaucracy, right, and, and scale to the entire country.、Um, and the the estimate was that the literacy rate, the book ownership, was quite high during that、uh, period.、Um, I can't really compare with the land ownership because that's not something I looked at. So I can only come up with these other indicators. It was one of the more successful、uh, dynasties in Chinese history、uh, in terms of、um, how long it lasted. It lasted uh, uh, something like three hundred years, more than three hundred years, right? So if you look at these indicators, it was a very successful、uh, period in Chinese history. Yeah, and clearly far ahead of Europe at the time.、Uh, even if they could work out how many cows everyone had, the technological advances you're you're just talking about are, are way ahead of Europe. So, isn't there a bit of a contradiction here? Because you're saying that this was a period in which the bureaucracy had a firm grip on China, and yet the innovation was at its height.、Uh, no, actually,、uh, they came up with three very important invention, inventions.、Uh, But in terms of the aggregate number of inventions, it lagged substantially behind the previous era, before the exam was introduced. In terms of aggregate number of inventions, yes, they invented some very significant technologies, but in terms of overall creativity, it, it paled in comparison with the previous period. So there's there's no contradiction. Uh, there, depending on the measure that you pick, we have also done follow-up、uh, work. If you count just so, so we talk about these three inventions, and these three inventions became famous in Europe because Francis Bacon argued that, and Karl Marx later on also argued the same、uh, same same idea that they transformed Europe. But China invented lots of other important inventions. That were not mentioned by Karl Marx and Francis Bacon. A lot of those other important inventions were invented before the Song Dynasty, before this period. Let's just、uh, understand another aspect of the system, which is yeah, you've got the emperor who's got this astonishing capacity to work out who's got you know the best memory, certainly, and and maybe the best capacity to write a, a policy essay. I guess. You know, you're describing the exams as as pretty rote learning and and, and uncreative. It, it also must have enabled people without a strong economic background to、yeah. get to the top. Yes, which presumably means that you know that 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 those who are very rich and powerful in the provinces may have been blocked by this system. Would that be right? Yeah, that's an excellent observation. Unlike Europe, the Chinese system. 
genuinely promoted mobility of people who came from humble backgrounds. The exam system was one mechanism, but the Chinese emperors thought through about this issue. If you only have the exam system open to the male population, you could also have elites capturing the process, right? Because elites had money, had assets to prepare their children for the exam. So they also established nationwide preparatory system, preparatory schools, nationwide in scale, free of charge to the boys, you know, very, very young boys, if they wanted to uh, prepare for the exam. So you actually had to go through the preparatory system first, free of charge, paid for by the, by, the, by the government. And then you had to take qualifying exam first to be eligible for the exam itself, right? So it was a economic device designed to enable people from humble backgrounds to also succeed at the exam. We did statistical analysis, we also did, um, um, you know, we, we also uh, have historical accounts. Genuinely speaking, it was a meritocratic system. People who came from humble backgrounds, statistically speaking, did not get discriminated against as compared with people who came from rich backgrounds. That was amazing, right? So think back in 10th century, 9th century. <laughs> it, was, it was an incredible system. It is astonishing, and I mean, it, it, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm quite familiar with Pakistan. If you go to remote areas of Pakistan today, let's say up by the Afghan border in the north, something like that, there are feudal landlords there who own you know, large, very large estates. And when the government tries to build schools in their area, they they don't want them, yeah, uh, because because they think it will challenge their power eventually. If if their people become educated, it's a threat. Did, did that happen in China? Well, so, so uh, this is getting to another aspect of the exam system. The exam system promoted people from humble backgrounds. It also demolished the power of aristocracy, landed aristocracy, hereditary uh, aristocracy. This is, a, this is a big contrast with Europe. Europe, you know, your country, Britain, right, had uh, nobility, had aristocracy, and the ruler was balanced and checked by the power of these aristocrats who had their own sources of power and economic wealth, whereas the exam system in China demolished these people, right? So this is the connection between exam and autocracy, a eliminated political competition. The emperor didn't have to share power with powerful aristocrats. And, and that explains the failure for democracy, for pluralism to emerge in China. Yeah, so China had bureaucracy f- first, and then maybe a bit of politics, whereas in the West it was politics first and then the bureaucracy. Yeah, so I have a section with the title Birth Order Matters, right? So if you have bureaucracy coming, uh, coming first on board, that eliminated other mobility channels. And not only the aristocracy was demolished, independent 
intellectuals were also demolished. They were completely absorbed into the bureaucracy. Commerce, there was vibrant commerce, right? Some historians believe that China didn't have bourgeoisie. No, actually, China had bourgeoisie. China didn't have organized bourgeoisie who were able to compete and challenge the imperial system. So essentially, there was nothing left but the imperial bureaucracy and the emperor. Whereas Europe, bureaucracy arrived after the church was already very powerful, after commerce was already powerful, after intellectuals were universities, right? Oxford University, Cambridge University, were already very powerful and independent. And bureaucracy just became one of those forces. It contributed to pluralism in Europe, whereas in China, bureaucracy contributed to autocracy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So you've given us a a very, very uh, splendid account of the exam system and why it's been so important in forming uh, Chinese political attitudes, social attitudes, and so on. So let's just spool right forward now. We'll have a look at the future at the end, but just get to, let's say, Mao. Now, my understanding of Mao, which is you know, pretty thin, but I mean, as I understand it, he, he destroyed the bureaucracy. Yeah. I mean, he, he, the Cultural Revolution was to overturn everything. So where did the exam system sit under Mao? Yeah, so that's a very interesting period to look into this question. He was n- not a fan of exam system. He was not a fan of bureaucracy. So he... Cultural Revolution destroyed the bureaucrats. The bureaucracy was there before the Cultural Revolution, but ideology was much, much more important than bureaucracy. As a result, what you see in China is that chaos, right? Cultural Revolution, you know, millions of people died. Great Leap Forward, uh, millions of people starved to death, right? So this is going to the other other extreme, which is that you give up on a organizing principle, which is the bureaucracy, without having another way of organizing the country and organizing the society. As a result, you have chaos, utter chaos, right? civil violence and uh, political prosecutions and, and, and things like that. So That was a period when China gave up on the bureaucratic approach, and therefore they gave up on the kind of stability that was associated with the uh, bureaucracy as the imperial system had. So the post-Mao leadership learned a lesson. They rebuilt the bureaucracy, and uh, they reconstituted meritocracy. They introduced the civil service exam system. They introduced the college uh, exam system and stabilized China. Right? We can talk about the Xi Jinping era uh, next. But during that period, between, uh, since 1978, China maintained stability. Right? 
and and as well as they produce economic growth and technological development. The reason is that they reintroduce bureaucracy, but they also opened up the system to foreign investments, to globalization, to private sector uh, entrepreneurship. So essentially, the system in my writing had both the scale, which is the bureaucratic part of the equation, as well as had some economic scope. And that, I believe, is the right formula for, for China. You know, different countries may end up on the different points on that formula, but China ended up that way. My complaint about the current system is that... Can, can I just, before, before you get onto the current, sure, can I just, sure. uh, yeah. just sort of pin that down? So would, would I be right in thinking that Deng Xiaoping was the man who, in your view, got the balance right? I think, by and large, he got the balance Right, right. So he didn't deviate too far away from the Chinese political culture, from Chinese political tradition. Right. He reintroduced bureaucracy. He reintroduced the meritocracy. But unlike the emperors, he opened up to the country as well. He opened up the country to the West. He opened up the uh, economic uh, system to private uh, ownership. He introduced these economic dynamic forces. So under Deng, China had more scope than the imperial system. It had more scale as compared with the Maoist system. So I, I think, by and large, he got the balance right. His, his contemporary in, in, in Moscow was Gorbachev. And I mean, yeah. I've often wondered how, how those two men did it, because they were brought up in these very constrained systems. Yeah, and yet were were I mean their achievements were utterly astonishing because you're just describing that for centuries China had been basically the same way. I mean Russia, you know, with its communist variant had been pretty much the same way for centuries, and you know, with its very strong central government and repressive control from the centre. And these two leaders somehow broke free. Have, have you ever wondered about how on earth they did it? Well, I, I do wonder, but there there you know there are similarities between them, but I think. The differences outweigh the similarities. Gorbachev was a product of that system. He was promoted to the uh, party secretary, general party secretary, essentially because the two previous ones died very, very quickly. So they had to go and look for a young, younger person. Gorbachev, if you look at his bureaucratic career, and he got promoted from a very small region in Russia quickly to the central government in charge of the agriculture of the Soviet Union. And then from that position, he got promoted to the Politburo. From there, he uh, became the head of the whole country. Whereas Deng Xiaoping was perched twice by Mao, and uh, he was uh, persecuted. His son was uh, pushed out of the window and became crippled because of the persecution by the right guards. So to some extent, Deng Xiaoping had a more of an outsider perspective as compared with Gorbachev. And the crucial thing in that difference is that when you see Deng Xiaoping at the head of the country, the entrepreneurs in China see a big change in politics, right? So this is a guy who was perched twice by Mao. Now he's running the country. 
So the country must be very, very different. Whereas Gorbachev, being a product of that system, had to do more to signal that he was different. So he undertook political reforms. Uh, uh, it was a perestroika or glasnost. I forgot which one is which. But also radical economic reforms. And the consensus among scholars who compare China with Soviet Union, and I agree with that consensus, is that Soviet Union went too fast, both on economics and on politics. Because when you land a plane, you want to land the plane you know, carefully and gradually. You don't really want to land the plane suddenly. And this is what happened to Gorbachev. He had to resort to these radical reforms, politically and economically, to indicate to the population that he was different. Whereas Stone didn't have to do that because of his uh, status of someone who was persecuted by Mao. Well, let's go to another man who suffered under Mao, the current leader, Xi Jinping, who I think in his childhood spent, or young adulthood anyway, spent some time living pretty much rough in a cave because of what uh, the Cultural Revolution meant for him. And he's now firmly in charge. And is he restoring, I mean, how do you see him? Is he restoring the imperial system with you know, ridiculous powers in one person? Or is is he, uh, you know, enthusiastic about the exam system and that whole meritocratic aspect of Chinese culture? Where does he sit in all this? Yeah, so I do believe relative to the Deng Xiaoping era, she is uh, undermining the bureaucratic stability pillar of the system. He has reintroduced personal loyalty, personality cult, loyalty pledges and things like that. He has, uh, he has um, also reduced the importance of economic growth uh, GDP as a measure of promotion, uh, substituted economic measures with political measures, right? So he has undermined the bureaucratic consistency that was introduced, reintroduced by Deng Xiaoping. And so, so to some extent, he has retreated from this bureaucratic scale, and he has also reduced the scope, right? So he has uh, cracked down on the private sector. He has uh, retreated from globalization. You know, he has uh, demolished the autonomy of Hong Kong. And he has uh, entered into this kind of geopolitical competition with the West, which happened to be the biggest market for Chinese products. So I, I don't believe this is the right way for China. And, and we have economic data to show for it, right? Economically, China is going through a tough period. And I believe that uh, if he continues on this path, the Chinese economy is going to be in a very difficult uh, situation. Yeah, but what about the politics of it? I mean, unlike his predecessors, he's got this amazing technological capacity to monitor the population. And... I th- am I right in saying the imperial history is that emperors did stay in power for life? Yeah. So, so what? The, okay. So, so there are two pieces to this, right? So, definitely, he has the surveillance capability that nobody else previously had. That's definitely true. And nobody else in today's world 
can compare remotely to to him. But there's one curse that he cannot escape from. And this is something that empiricism didn't have to worry about, which is succession, right? So in the imperial system, the emperor's seat went automatically to the oldest son of the emperor. And Chinese emperors had a lot of children because they could, they could do whatever. With, 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 they could marry, they could have concubines. So there was no shortage of male offspring. And so that became a straightforward issue. And this is one factor why the Chinese imperial system was was stable. Today, China is different, right? It's a republican form of the government. It is not hereditary. The succession issues are going to come up sooner rather than later. He's entering into his third term of office. And the history of Chinese Communist Party in handling succession issues is not a very pretty one. You know, Mao demolished his succession plans, Deng demolished his succession plans, but Deng Xiaoping did better than Mao in the sense that he came up with a system to smooth the transition. He introduced the term limits, he introduced the mandatory age uh, limit, and then Xi Jinping demolished these in 2018. And this is why in my book, I define 2018 as the end of the reform era when he demolished these institutional limits that were created by Deng Xiaoping. That issue is going to create political instability in China. Going back to the surveillance, historically speaking, political instability in an autocracy is typically created not by demonstrations on the streets, but by internal conflicts among the elites, the purges and the prosecutions of one group of the elites against another group of elites, right? So, you know, that I don't see how you can do away with no matter what kind of surveillance technology that you have. And that coupled with succession complications is going to be one issue that the Communist Party has to confront. When Stalin in the Soviet Union died, and only after he died, some of his elite colleagues started uh, conspiring to take over and to break away from his ideology. But when he was alive, they just didn't dare do it. And and those who did do anything out of line were, were killed. I mean, I'm not saying that she is Stalin, but do you believe there is discussion within the elite, the Chinese elite, where people voice privately between themselves clear opposition to Xi Jinping? Uh, I don't know about the political <laughs> yeah, exactly. political yeah. elites. I do know about the economic elites, and they have okay. plenty of complaints. I mean, they they they, they lose they lose economic opportunities, right, under his uh, leadership. And some of their assets are being seized by the government and they cannot develop their businesses. Your, your analogy to Stalin is very interesting. Basically, before Stalin died, I don't think we had any idea who was going to emerge as a 
powerful successor because we had no information, right? The whole thing was a black box. It was a black box because of lack of transparency, but it was also a black box because when you have such a towering individual, everybody looked like a dwarf, right? And equally so. I think that you have a similar dynamic in Chinese politics today. You know, if I have to say who is a you know, second most powerful person in China, I have absolutely no idea. This is unlike Mao when he died in 1976. At that time, we know, uh, we knew that there were other political leaders who had similar stature, I mean, lower stature than Mao for sure, but, you know, in the ballpark of things, they, they were founding fathers of China along with Mao. They fought with Mao in the revolution, right? Deng Xiaoping was, was one of them, and there were quite a few others who were like that. So we kind of knew that they were going to take over. This is actually a more dangerous situation in China today because none of the current leaders below Xi Jinping had that credential. So that means that once the top person is gone, there's going to be fairly nasty struggle. And we, I, I don't even want to think about it, how that is going to unfold. So just finally, on all, on all this, you've got the economic um, elite who you say are unhappy. And I think an astonishing number of people have been uh, investigated or punished for corruption, haven't they? I mean, millions of people. Yeah. So uh, who, who, who must... Uh, you know, resent Xi Jinping for that. So do you believe those sources of opposition can challenge him eventually in some way, or or is everyone waiting for his, his death? I think it's more of the latter than the former. And I think the thing that is going to challenge him is the economy. And the economy is not doing very well. And unlike Mao the current Chinese government spends a lot of money. So essentially, I think about this issue as uh, kind of in business school terms, uh, cash flow in, cash flow out. You need to grow the economy at a relatively fast pace because you spend a lot of money, right? Belt and road, uh, industrial policy, technology, semiconductor, infrastructure, building new cities, you need a lot of the outlays, right? Spend a lot of money on these projects. Usually, economically rational autocrat will say, okay, because I need to spend so much money, I really need to make a lot of money as well. The current situation is that this system spends a lot of money, but it is doing lots of things to sort of reduce economic growth and reduce the sources of the cash flows into the system. At some point, <laughs> that, that equation is not going to hold, right? And I actually worry about an economic meltdown, and then that may precipitate political, political issues, and even before the succession issue comes up. Um, but, you know, none of us has any crystal ball. We don't really know what's going to happen. But I think we're all much wiser for having listened to you. So thank you very much indeed for you know a, a very good overview of the, of the history and, and what's going on now. 
Thank you very much. I enjoyed the discussion. Thank you.